Welcome to the UX podcast. My name is Dahlia. I'm going to be your host for today. I am a senior staff researcher on the product sourcing PL based out of Berlin. And I'm really excited today to get to talk to Alain, who is the first person that I am recording a podcast with. So Alain, you are or were the second content strategist at Shopify. And for a while, the only one. You have been instrumental in shaping the newly named content design discipline at Shopify. And now you are the senior UX manager on cross-border. So we're going to get to talking about all of this stuff. And I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and what your journey at Shopify was like and how you ended up on the cross-border team. Yeah. So I've been with Shopify for about five and a half years now. And yes, started on the, then it was called the content strategy discipline and spent my first two years at Shopify kind of building that into a discipline team. And then after two years, switched to kind of a more discipline agnostic UX role. Uh, so I was leading UX for our insights team, um, which has to do with analytics and reporting that we provide to our merchants and recommendation systems and machine learning algorithms, those kinds of things, uh, which was super fun. And I learned a lot. About a year and a half ago, I started talking to Monica, who's our director of UX, and she was telling me about this team that they were just starting. And the problem space that they were exploring was around Shopify merchants with someone trying to start a business and sell to a different country than the one they're in. And the thing about that is that as soon as you try and take a product across international borders, almost every single part of starting a business gets so much like exponentially harder than it is already. And it's already pretty hard. And so she was talking to me about this problem and it was really kind of the problem that won me over. I was like, that is incredibly cool. I want to work on that. So that was kind of the trigger for me to switch teams. And I've been with this team for about a year and a half now. Started quite small with three designers at the time. And we're building up the UX team. We're about 10 people now. It's been a trip. It's been a good one. Nice. So how's your team distributed right now? Where is everyone located? You're just recently moved to Vancouver yourself. How are you guys making all of this work? Yeah, we're pretty geographically distributed since we announced our digital by design future. I think we're seeing people sort of start to head back to uh, where they were before they started with Shopify. So we'll have a couple of people here in British Columbia and Pacific time. We still have some people that are in Toronto and Montreal in Eastern time. And then we have a few folks in the UK as well. Uh, So we're we're quite geographically distributed. So it's been, you know, like it's definitely been a challenge. I'm not going to lie. Like working across that many time zones of, you know, I have two hours of overlap uh, with some of my reports during the day. It's a challenge for sure. But we're working to sort of shift to asynchronous communication and documentation as much as possible and like building those muscles as a team. So it's been a good challenge. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think having been in Montreal before I was here for a long time and having a lot of connections with the team there and then moving here where I get like two hours of overlap with North America, essentially. And obviously the majority of the research team is located there and we have a lot of conversations about discipline related stuff. I think the hardest thing that I found is shutting off Slack and not looking at work after like 5, 6 p.m. because that's about the time when North America really gets going and it's really easy to like get sucked into the conversations and get sucked into everything and try to respond even though people are saying, get to this in the morning, but you just want to do it right in the moment. And that's been quite difficult, I think. Yeah. And like deferring decision-making, I think has been a real challenge of, you know, the group that's there will feel like they're coming towards a consensus and being able to pull back and say like, okay, 
this group might think so, but we haven't talked to everyone yet. We actually need to stop this conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what are you guys doing in terms of rituals where you have to be sort of like face-to-face or synchronous given that you only have, you know, two hours? I mean, I actually kind of feel bad that I'm, I feel like I'm taking one of your hours right now. In a way. <laughs> this is a sort of multi-compatible uh, time, but yeah, nice. And can you tell me a little bit about the four different projects or areas that you have under cross-border? Yeah. So yeah, the the central idea of the cross-border team is to help Shopify merchants expand their businesses internationally. So the fun and challenging part is that basically touches every single aspect of starting a business. So we are focusing on kind of the, the core workflows for expanding internationally. The first one is selling in multiple currencies and kind of how you price your products in, in different countries, things like payment methods. So what do you use to pay for them? For example, North Americans tend to use credit cards. Mm-hmm. Outside of North America, that's not as much of a thing. So one, we want to make those other kinds of payment methods available, but also we want to bring those other kinds of payment methods to merchants that are in North America and don't know that that's not the convention where they're trying to sell. So payments pricing, currency is one. Another big rock is language and translation. So merchants want to be able to translate their store into multiple languages. They want to be able to provide customer service in multiple languages, emails, things like that. Translation is honestly really tough and really expensive to do right now. So there's a ton of roadmap there to make that easy and better integrated with Shopify. Another big rock is around duties and customs. So if you try and send a product across international borders, the governments involved will charge duties or taxes on top of that, which is a huge challenge for merchants and buyers right now. Buyers, like I'm sure you've had the experience of a product arrives, you've ordered something, it arrives at your door and suddenly you owe another $80 and you just, you don't know why uh, it surprises you. And so what we're finding is that buyers blame the merchant for that. They're like, why are you charging me this $80 when really it's the government charging that? Mm -hmm. So they're surprised and sort of betrays their trust. A little bit. So what we're trying to do is give buyers the ability to understand that duties will be charged, pay for them in checkout if they want to, and sort of build back up that trust and understanding uh, between the merchant and the buyer. And then there's all kinds of other related problems around like filling out customs forms is really challenging right now, understanding the tax implications or your tax obligations for different countries that you sell in. Yeah, also a problem. Uh, and then we have a whole other stream around kind of like foundational problems of right now in Shopify, it's actually quite challenging to understand what are all the countries you sell to and what is the experience of your buyer in each of those countries. So there, there's a bunch of foundational work that we have to do to help merchants like understand and customize um, their buyer's experience. Yeah, that's fascinating. Sorry, you're talking about with customs just like brought back some flashbacks of a couple of weeks ago where, I mean, I'd heard, I'd heard anecdotally and on Reddit that having a deal with customs in Germany is particularly uh, difficult. And I mean, it's a bit more similar to Canada than the US where like the minimum threshold on which you get charged customs is also very, very low. I believe in Canada, it's like $22 or something. And I think here it's, it's some comparable amount my mom, who has never, I don't have a family that's very good at surprises and generally doesn't really exchange gifts, but my mom, having not seen me in so long, thought it would be a good idea to buy me a birthday gift and have it shipped as a surprise to Germany. And so she coordinated with my partner 
around like getting something shipped to our address. And next thing I know, my mom is starting to forward me forms from DHL saying that I need to take care of them because she doesn't understand what's going on. And I slowly start to deduce what the situation is and ruin the surprise. And then my partner is sort of like, your mom can't keep it straight. And like, you know, trying to, to solve the problem with her when she keeps forwarding things to me. And I think there were phone calls involved. There were emails. There were forms that needed to be filled out. There was text messages that I was receiving because DHL is magical enough that it knows my phone number based on my name and address. So it's being helpful. Yeah. Things are arriving when I shouldn't know that things are arriving and sending me text messages to fill out, sending me text messages to fill out forms online, even though they also have my email. So the whole thing was just enough to detract me from wanting to order from that website again, even though I had mm-hmm. great plans of ordering and their Shopify store as well, based in Russia. And there were quite a few things that was planning to order. And now I am thinking really hard about totally. to do that again or not. Yeah, totally. Well, and the bummer is like, that's not the merchant's fault. Exactly. You know, it's just yeah. a byproduct of, of where they are and where you are, which like, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> so like anything we can do to make that complexity go yeah. away. I found something you said really interesting in terms of helping, you know, merchants understand a little bit more about their audiences in different countries and what they need. And it's something I hadn't really considered before. I mean, obviously, merchants strive to understand a lot about their customers. We sometimes try to do our best to bridge that gap and educate them. But, you know, even we don't know as much as as our merchants sometimes. And it just makes me wonder if you are interested in selling in other countries, where do you even begin to understand things like what are the right you know, payment gateways that you should set up? What are the right shipping methods? Like what are merchants doing today to overcome some of these challenges and maybe how your team is thinking about that as well? Yeah, it's a huge challenge. So what merchants are doing today is they're just opening up Google and they're doing a Mm -hmm. ton of desk research themselves. Um, They lean heavily on things like community forums, Facebook groups, things like that. So you'll see uh, questions pop up constantly. It's like, how how are you doing this? How is anyone doing this? So there's a lot of that happening, but that has obvious challenges with like information becomes out of date. You know, governments update their uh, customers requirements all the time. And so merchants are often acting on old information or not totally reputable or not accurate information and making decisions that don't end up being in their best interest. So that's a whole other stream of work in the future is for Shopify to become that kind of source of, okay, mm-hmm. if you're selling to Germany, you need to know this and mm-hmm. also press this button and we set it up for you. Yeah. It's the dream. Uh, yeah. That would be really cool <laughs> to have. What in your experience or like from the research that you guys have done, what typically motivates a merchant to want to sell outside of their uh, own region or home country or however they define that? Mm-hmm. Like it varies widely, obviously, but I would say broadly, there will be sort of a reactive expansion uh, where emerging mm-hmm. will start to notice like, oh, I'm getting traffic from this country that I wasn't expecting or like, oh, I got featured on this blog and now I'm getting all of this traffic or these sales. And so that will cause them to sort of pivot their operations or like start to invest in this area where they might not have uh, otherwise. And then the more proactive approach, like international growth, the same as it is for Shopify, honestly, is a way to expand your addressable market. So merchants come to this at different stages in their journey. So for example, we see that European merchants are more likely to consider cross-border sales earlier on in their Germany or in their journey with Shopify, just because of the nature of the EU, like cross-border is much more achievable and in reach. Yeah, many merchants consider it to be just sort of their next stage of growth of their business. 
That makes sense. You mentioned earlier as well that this is a problem space that touches on so many different things. And I'm really interested in learning a bit more about what that process looks like. So I think, I mean, if you've been at Shopify for any length of time, you've probably experienced, you know, the differences between building a feature that you completely own yourself and your team has complete autonomy and control over it versus having to do cross scale collaboration, which I think arguably is something that we're still getting getting good at and hopefully we'll get better at in time. But yeah, how do you guys decide how you're going to build a feature, to what extent you're going to own and to what extent you will have to collaborate with another team? And how do you work through these problems considering different teams, different PLs have different roadmaps and different things they're trying to achieve? So how do you negotiate for getting in on these roadmaps and, and collaborating with these teams? Yeah, this honestly has been one of the bigger challenges because like, but the nature of the problems we choose, there's almost nothing that the cross-border team like to use scare quotes owns. So there's no like page in the admin that is exclusively about cross-border selling and we can just ship whatever we want. So basically every project we do uh, is shipping into someone else's future. And like you say, every team has a completely stacked roadmap. Everyone's super busy. So finding additional time to help out this tiny team that they've never met before, it's understandably challenging. So how we try and approach it is one, like our biggest priority, obviously, is to get this value out to merchants of like, they are actively blocked by Shopify today in so many ways and are sort of like desperate uh, to make these things possible for them that aren't today. So what we always look for is like, how might we get this function, this capability out to merchants in a way that limits the footprint and impact on existing admin Mm -hmm. uh, features? So like apps can be a great way to do that, myriad other paths, but basically like how do we get the functionality out without having a huge impact? And also that helps us build confidence in the right way to do it. So by the time that we are ready to ship something um, that has a bigger impact and requires a bigger investment, we're very, very confident in like the patterns, the behaviors, what is actually needed. And we have a strong business case for why this matters. Yeah. On that note of building business cases, how do you guys as a team decide what it is that you want to prioritize your team at these four different areas. I mean, it can appear that trying to help merchants all over the world sell to buyers all over the world is a pretty big problem space with a lot of different ways that you might tackle it. So how does your team prioritize and decide what are the biggest things that you could tackle or the most impactful things that you can tackle? Yeah, so there are kind of two ways that we think about this. So the first is kind of the maturity of the cross-border merchant. So we have an admittedly smaller number of merchants who are already actively trying to do this on Shopify today, and they are blocked by our capability. Um, So these tend to be more mature cross-border merchants. And they're saying like, hey, I'm ready to translate my store. I have the time, I have the expertise, like just let me do it. And then we have more of those like passive or reactive cross-border merchants that are saying like, oh, I'm getting traffic from this country, but I don't really know what to do yet. So what we've chosen to do is sort of unblock those more advanced merchants for now, like make these things possible. And then that also gives us uh, the opportunity to learn from them and say like, what are these really successful merchants doing? How are they setting up their cross-border practices? And then we can bring that expertise to those more passive early stage cross-border merchants um, and say, this is how you should be selling to Germany. So largely right now we're choosing problems for those more targeted merchants today. And then the other way that we're thinking about it is we'll talk a lot about the the spectrum of make something possible, make something easy, and then make something magic. 
Um, and so because we were kind of starting from a large feature deficit of just so much of this could not be done on Shopify when we started this team, we spent the first year and a half really making a bunch of stuff possible that wasn't like you could not translate your store on Shopify without terrible, awful hacks until recently. You could not sell in multiple currencies on Shopify until recently. So there's a whole bunch of like heavy lifting to build those foundational blocks. And then as we kind of get those checked off the list, now we can move to making things easy. We're helping you optimize the currencies and your pricing over time. And then eventually, ideally one day, uh, that all becomes sort of magic where we can bring you that expertise and help you sort of optimize the experience for your buyers in a certain country without you having to spend days and days on Google and forums. Yeah. What's your vision of something magical? So say we solve all of the sort of table stakes problems that people mm-hmm. need in order to be able to sell cross-border. So, you know, the things that you guys are working today, currency, language, what is the next level of an experience for a buyer, for example, who is in one country shopping for another? And maybe as someone who shops online yourself and has potentially shopped on on international stores, what's that vision look like or what would you like to see? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question from both a buyer perspective and a merchant perspective. Mm -hmm. From a buyer perspective, I think the vision is largely that a shopping experience should feel local to you, either local or uh, country agnostic, Mm -hmm. um, no matter where you are in the world. So to use your example of shopping in a store that's based in Russia, like, should you need to know that the Mm -hmm. shop is based in Russia? If it's a product that you love, can you just buy it and it arrives at your door as if the store was just on the street. I didn't know it was based in Russia. So that's why it was even more so surprising. Right. Thank you. Yeah. The prices were in euros. The language was in English. It looked mm. sure that would be based out of the EU, but right. fine print. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That fulfillment chain is one of our merchants' biggest challenges. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, you can translate your store, you can set up your prices, but getting that kind of last mile mm-hmm. is intensely challenging for them. So Largely, we want all online shopping experiences to feel local and to end. Mm-hmm. There are interesting exceptions to that where, you know, like there's some, like take a, um, an Italian handbag where like this product being from Italy is actually really, really powerful. So in those cases, they might want to more lean into their kind of geographical identity. That's a separate topic. And then from the merchant experience side, I think a lot about like, what does a merchant actually need to let into their brains? Mm-hmm. Um, like business is so hard there's so many so many aspects so like what is worth it for a merchant to spend time learning about and investing in so an example of this would be something like taxes of like do i think that we should tell a shopify merchant like hey you're gonna actually have to go and research german taxation law and understand the nuances of exactly how the german government expects it's like just hearing you say this i was like oh god Exactly. So like, I believe strongly taxes are something that we should ideally one day just be able to take out of a merchant brain of like, you never have to think about taxes when you start a business with Shopify. We are the expert in taxes. We bring all of this to you. You can access it at any time. You can review, approve, edit if you need to, but like we bring this to you. Customs are another one. Payment methods are another one of like, we should just know what buyers in the Netherlands expect to use to pay. And we give you that. And that's not a thing that you have to let into your brain. That's really interesting, actually, to talk about this idea of Shopify being sort of a trusted source of information for our merchants. 
And really curious how that tied into your work back when you were on the insights team, which obviously is one of the aspects of Shopify where, you know, everything has to be completely reliable, accurate, you know, arguably more so than a lot of other aspects of the platform. And, you know, I've haven't done research specifically in the area, but I had heard from merchants, for example, who would say, how come my Google Analytics is different from my Shopify? And sort of trying, like these discrepancies can really sort of break the trust. And I, yeah, I'm curious to learn like what that experience was like for you on the Insights team and how some of these lessons or some of the things that you've learned from working with that team about the importance of that trust are translating now that, you know, we're potentially thinking about a place where we want people to trust us on things like taxes. And like, that's not something you fuck around with, you know, like the risks of getting it wrong are just so high. Yeah, absolutely. And like the analytics team, for example, spent a significant amount of time years back of making the reporting more accurate because of that problem that you speak of, of just like, and sometimes it can be as seemingly simple as penny rounding can just make the numbers be off. And to your point, like trust is gone immediately. So, you know, I think a useful principle <laughs> to have is like being wrong is often worse than having nothing at all. Um, <laughs> so just like a high, high burden of proof and like a high burden of confidence, I think will be crucial. So. Like how I think about that in the cross-border context is like there's a very, very high bar for turning something on by default or doing something on behalf of the merchant. Like we have to be extremely sure that we are right before we would do something like that. And so before we get to that point, that's when we would use something like an opt-in um, or like this is available to you. You need to understand the consequences and be sure that it's right for your business before you choose to turn it on. Mm -hmm. One day we want to get to the point where we can turn it on by default, but we're not yeah. there yet. Okay. I'm going to uh, shift gears a little bit and talk more about the, the craft of UX. Uh, so I've seen you on Slack having some really interesting conversations, some of the channels around measuring the impact of UX work. And I think you, you've, you've worked with a lot of different teams at Shopify right now. You've probably experienced a lot of different structures for UX team. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think UXers can be measuring their impact, whether it's how you guys are doing it on the team you're on right now, or perhaps how you've done it on previous teams that you've worked on throughout your time here. I don't know if I can answer your question exactly. <laughs> but yeah, like the way that I, so my bias in UX teams, which has its like benefits and drawbacks, I think, is I think of UX as largely a lens and a tool a way to do the thing that actually matters, which is to make merchants' lives better. And so like, I am not a UXer or a UX leader that like the craft of product design is really the thing that motivates me or drives me. And like, thank God that we have so, so many talented designers and researchers and content designers that do love that. But the thing that drives me is really that like product impact. And so when I think about the impact or the efficacy of a UX team, that's really what I look for is like, year over year, month over month, how is the merchant and buyer life improving? Yeah. And like, how have we contributed to that? I really believe in UXers' ability to and need to like fully participate in, and own that part of it as well. So when I think about the impact of a team, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Do you guys tend to work closely? I mean, obviously you have researchers on your team. Do you collaborate closely with the data scientists or sort of try and be involved in some of those metrics conversations to understand the impact of the work that is being produced by the UX team? Yeah, very much. And that's been a fun and challenging part of my own personal growth 
in the last couple of years, especially is like, I have to admit, like when I started at Shopify, my bias is very much like, oh, you just do the right thing. Like mm-hmm. understand your users, understand merchants, do the right thing for them. And then like the metrics will follow. So I wasn't, I like definitely wouldn't have considered myself to be sort of like a data-driven person. It's been such a pleasure working with the data team on cross-border. And they've, I think, really shaped my understanding of how data can incentivize teams to do the right thing and help build that understanding of like, if you have the right KPIs, if you're tracking the right thing that maps to that merchant success that you're looking for, how data can help a team say like, are we on track or are we not? So our data team has set up for each product that we have a KPIs that do ladder up to that merchant success. Um, and we keep a pretty close eye on them as a team and like track them week over week. We talk about them, we like bring them into conversations much more than we have on my past teams. And it's been, I think, much healthier than I would have expected. Because my fear is always like, I always worry about the like the dark side of data-driven, you know, where you're making choices just to like artificially inflate a number. But what I've learned and seen is that when those numbers are responsibly designed, it can be extremely healthy for a team. That's great. And how did the UX team in particular feel about that? You know, at the start of this journey, was there any like fear or hesitation? Were some of the things that, for example, they had to do to try and get a little bit more comfortable or a little bit more literate with the data or that way of thinking about things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's uncomfortable. We used our bi-weekly show and tell to kind of roll it out where our data team did a talk on like, hey, how did we arrive at these numbers? How are we going to use them? And then in every show and tell, we talk about them when there's time. And then every week, it sort of goes into all of our team channels of how we're doing. And we can start conversations from there. Like, oh, like, you know, week over week, this isn't what we were expecting. Or like, oh, this quarter actually like growth wasn't what we thought it would be. Here's why. And then it also helps us shape our product prioritization in terms of the problems that we choose. Do these problems ladder up to the thing that we ultimately believe leads to merchant success? So I would say some discomfort, (laughs) but we're lucky (laughs) enough again to have just like such an amazing data team that makes this stuff feel really accessible. Um, and really connects it to like the merchant lived experience, which is what I really care about. And I think that's been kind of the difference. That's great. And so in terms of the experiences, the features that you you guys are shipping, I, I know we touched a little bit on rituals earlier, but I'm curious how you decide that something is ready to ship. So I've always known you as one of the sort of OG UX review people. You've really championed those in the beginning. They've gone through many iterations at Shopify. Full disclosure, I've always been a big fan of UX reviews, but I know that they've been adopted to varying degrees right now in different PLs and different teams. So how are you sort of leveraging these types of rituals or potentially using other types of rituals to help the UX work, you know, the design, the content, the research get through the right phases and, you know, get to that level, that, that, that quality bar that we expect by the time it goes out to merchants or buyers? Yeah. Oh, man, it feels like you have been reading my diary. Uh, this is like very top of mind for me right now. So like when I joined the cross-border team, it was three designers. And so at that size of team, I don't think a standing ritual like books regularly scheduled UX reviews makes a lot of sense for a team at that size. And so I really leaned away from that at the time. Uh, and we did a lot of ad hoc conversations, uh, like as things came up, jump on a call, work through it. But then as the team has scaled close to 10 people in UX, about 35 across all of our disciplines, we're at that kind of like natural breaking point where ad hoc conversations. So 
like I have this giant fear of creating like a series of gates for teams before they can do anything because like that doesn't feel good you know like no one wants to feel like they're jumping through hoops to do the right thing no one wants to feel like they have to wait two weeks for a UX review before they can ship something that they have high confidence in so I think my perspective has shifted there a little bit to honestly like avoid that type of tactic Mm -hmm. for as long as possible but there's a certain point where like something needs to happen So we are starting to layer back in sort of like standing time for teams to talk through what they're thinking about and what they're working on. So less of like a gated review and more of a like, hey, time for us to jam on stuff. And like, if you're getting close to you're wanting to ship something, yeah, let's go through it and let's talk about it together. Um, But hopefully feeling like a less formal approval on the cross-border team. How do I decide when something ships? Oh, man. I've, I've been going through this, you know a little bit as well. And this idea of like, how do we decide when something is done? And is it ever really done? And like, you know, almost arriving at this conclusion that there's different meanings of done depending on where you are, right? There's a mm-hmm. done, of like, it's ready to move to the next stage. There's a done of it's ready to ship to merchants. There's a done in terms of like, no team has resources to touch this anymore. There is you can ship stuff and still iterate on it. Like, I think that that's been a bit of a challenge to wrap our heads around when we think that something is actually done. So yeah, I'd mm-hmm. look more about how your team makes decisions around that and how you sort of come to agreements around when things are ready to move forward or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like I'm pretty heavily influenced by the fact that in this particular problem area, we're working from a huge deficit. And and so like a thing that I think about and we talk about all the time is like, okay, a merchant is fully blocked on this today. Is the additional scope that we're talking about worth keeping them fully blocked. So I'd say we're like very, very ruthless about scope um, and functionality in terms of MVP. And then in terms of UX quality, like those discussions, I find a lot more challenging. So I try and think of, you know, like what's a reversible decision and what's an irreversible decision, your one-way door, your two-way door. When is it worth investing in a new pattern, for example, versus Mm -hmm. when can we leverage an existing component in Polaris where maybe it's not like perfectly the thing that we want. It's not the ideal experience, but again, it makes something possible for that initial release to get the functionality out the door. I think a challenge we've run into across Shopify a lot is we will ship an MVP knowing that it's an MVP and then priorities naturally makes total sense to change. And then a team has to move on to a different problem. And so what we end up with are these like MVPs that stay in the wild. And that's all we ever do. That's all we're ever able to do. So I feel like it's led to a bit of like, ooh, where that that bar for that initial release becomes artificially inflated because we're all afraid that the team is going to get moved on to something else. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing we've been like really, really, really careful about on cross-border team is like keeping these cohesive embedded teams with high context on the same problem for a long period of time. So that initial release isn't going to be everything we want it to be, but we're also not going to move them on to a completely different problem area. And so like building that safety, like we are going to be able to come back to it. It's okay. We are going to have (laughs) other releases has helped, I think, but it's like, it's so challenging. That's a great way of thinking about it. And I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about, you know, when you put it in terms of so many things that we've really started out as MVPs that didn't get touched as much afterward. And one thing that comes to mind for me is 
I think it was last year, Toby had some concerns uh, about some aspects of the order status page after someone had tweeted about it. And upon seeing that, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this project from five years ago where we had so many plans for the order status page. You know, it was going to be a hub and a place for people to build out connections. And essentially what shop in a way ended up becoming. But at the time, you know, we released a version that like, without that context doesn't make a lot of sense as a standalone page or product, but at the time was a very first good step in a process that was meant to be iterative towards, you know, we had a vision for it being a place where essentially merchants and buyers can build longer term connections with one another. So that was an interesting reminder uh, to kind of think about, as you're saying, the stuff that we have put in the wild that hasn't really been touched in a long time. And perhaps the purpose of it becomes less and less clear as time goes on. So it's a real trap. Yeah. Totally. And like totally understandable that organizational yeah. priorities change and like unavoidable to an extent, but it comes at a cost. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, you know, thinking about 12 months for now, I think we have some idea that, you know, hopefully your teams are still going to be continuing to iterate and work on some of the pieces that they're embedded on. But where would you want to see things go in 12 months? Or what do you hope things are going to look like for the team, for the merchants who are selling cross-border and the buyers uh, in a year from now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a year from now, we just have to get to the point where all of merchants' core cross-border jobs are possible where they're not today. Some of our problem areas are further along than others, but like, we just have to be done that work. <laughs> it's not okay. <laughs> so, and like, we're very much on track to do that. So that would be the first big rock. And then the second aspect and where it starts to get really fun is what we have done so far is we've made a whole bunch of things possible, but honestly quite fragmented. You know, like we're working in products, we're working in taxes, we're working in shipping. All of these things are becoming possible, but it's still quite hard to understand the holistic buyer experience and the state of your business for mm -hmm. a certain country. So that's one thing that we are looking to start working on in the next 12 months is bringing those workflows together. Mm -hmm. um, so like when you want to sit down and say, I want to improve my business in France, how do you build that holistic understanding and how do you understand the interconnectedness of your business? I mean, I very selfishly hope that you guys uh, solve a lot of these problems. I found out a couple of weeks ago that, uh, you know, Parachute, the Shopify store mm -hmm. itself, they stopped shipping to Germany and I really just wanted more towels and more bathrobes. And now, yeah, I have to wait to go back to Canada and have them ship there. They're even still shipping to Canada, but that was pretty heartbreaking because I was going around recommending bathrobes to people here. Oh, no. We're like, I can't get those. So Sorry, kid. When we've talked to merchants that their business plan has been blocked by Shopify mm -hmm. and they're saying like, I'm ready to expand so that I have the team, I have the time, like everything else is ready, but like Shopify won't let me do this, mm -hmm. which is just the most like devastating thing to hear. Yeah. Before we sign off, I'm going to ask you to give us some recommendations. If you can recommend one UX related thing and one non-UX related thing for us to consume. So it could be anything from a book, a movie, a TV show, a band, a song, an outing, socially distanced, preferably a food, a recipe, Ooh. anything at all that you're really into. One that's UX related and one that is non-UX related. Oh no. <laughs> one okay. Recipes, which I would like to hear about, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tangentially UX related. It's not really, I've been really into this book lately called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. It's by Richard P. Rumelt, R-U-M-E-L-T. 
it's only tangentially related to UX, um, but like one thing that I think can be a superpower for UX teams is when they're able to participate and like shape these strategic conversations of like not just what are we working on, but why, what is it laddering up to? And this book is sort of the the clearest and most compelling thing that I've read for like what what makes a good strategy and how to build one as a team. So it's it's pretty businessy, but I highly recommend it. Nice. I cheated on that question. Uh, <laughs> and then non-UX related. Honestly, my brain is functioning at like 20% capacity right now. So my cultural consumption, like I'm rewatching Suits right now. Like that's where my brain is. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, I don't have a ton to offer that way. Uh, I mean, you are talking to someone who is rewatching season one of The Real Housewives of New York on uh, Netflix, just because it happens to be. All right. Well, Really appreciate you taking the time to hop on this wildly appropriate multiple time zone call about 9 a.m. for you. So really appreciate that. You took the time to share some of your thoughts and what your team is working on. Thanks, Dahlia. This is fun. Bye. Bye.